I am still recovering from altitude and humidity jet lag after coming from Colorado this past week, so bear with me. My voice is a little tenuous, as is my brain. I am grateful for this church to give leave for me to attend the Aspen Ideas Festival, but especially for the Arthur Vining Davis Scholarship, which enabled me as well as 19 other fellows to attend at their expense. It was an enormously powerful experience for me to learn at the feet of many very smart people, and I am grateful for it in ways I can't tell you. You'll be hearing more about it as the summer goes through. I'm actually telling a story today from it. I'm also taking the liberty of the preacher to change the text on you this morning. Originally, I had picked the text from Romans 6 because it is about the freedom offered us, being that this is July the 4th, the freedom offered us in Jesus Christ to be set free from all of the things that enslave us. But it struck me that really the passage from Galatians 5, 13 through 26, more clearly makes that point, and it is known to us in the church as the Christian Magna Carta. I'm going to begin reading from the message version of the text, and then I will end with the new RSV. Hear now the word as it comes to us from Galatians. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other, and where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods 
magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of communities, and as if he didn't cover it all, he writes, and things like these I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, Paul says. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Now reading from the New Revised Standard Version, by contrast, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, that is, living out of the law, with its passions and desires. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit, and let us not become conceited, competing against one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Those who were in my Sunday school class know where this question is coming from, but let me ask you nevertheless, what tribe are you in? Republican or Democrat? Gay or straight? For abortion or free choice? Or not? What tribe are you in, in terms of how you understand your story and your identity? There was a man in our group from, at, from Harvard as one of our fellows named Dan Shapiro, who works for Harvard as a world-renowned negotiator. He travels all over the world trying to negotiate Crisis, including the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. Ultimately, he says that the issue of tribalism is that it gives us a false sense of identity which is very hard to overcome. Did you get that? The issue with tri tribalism is that it gives us a false sense of identity that's very hard to overcome. So several years ago, he devised a process or a model to try to help people that he worked with identify their own propensity toward tribalism. He first used it in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. As the leaders streamed into the room, 
A young staffer handed out six different colored scarves and then led them with that particular color to the table that matched the color so that there were six tables filled with folks gathered. He watched as one CEO of a major 30 fortune, uh, 30 company, a deputy head of state and a prominent university professor sit down at the same table and begin to make general conversation. Then at one o'clock, Dan stepped out behind his desk into the middle of the room and welcomed everyone warmly. As the name Tribes appeared on the television screen behind him, he began to explain how our world is becoming more and more tribal. Paradoxically, as we are now able through technology to connect to more and more people, we are becoming smaller and smaller in our affinity groups, our tribal groups. There's a strange paradox that, I guess, because we are so threatened by a bigger world, we find smaller identities. Today, you will have the chance to form into your own tribes at your table, he told the group. You have 50 minutes to answer some questions that will help you decide the key qualities of your particular table tribe. The questions were designed to make them stand on what they believe, like, do you believe in capital punishment, or for or against abortion, and what are the three most values uh, most important values in your particular tribe. After 50 minutes of agonizing, laborious conversation, trying to come up with a consensus of what each table tribe rested on, they finally got to a place where they had something to work with. But at the 50-minute mark, the whole room went dark. There was a knock on the door and in entered a, an alien with a flashlight in his face that had green skin and big black fly eyes and said, I am the alien of doom. You have three chances to work out how all six of you tribes are going to become one tribe or I am going to blow the world up. Some people laughed, some people snickered, but everyone immediately got to work in their own tribe. The first round was uh, to send your tribal representative out to sit on six different stools where they would begin the process of working out how to come together in one tribe. They argued over process, they had some conversation about things that was not necessarily contentious, but they didn't come to full agreement. In round two, the emotional temperature intensified. These leaders were determined to save the world, but the charismatic delegate from the Rainbow Tribe, a well-dressed business executive, proclaimed, we believe in all colors, in all people, in all tribes. Come to our tribe. Everyone is accepted. A venture capitalist crossed his arms, glared at the Rainbow Tribe, and complained, okay, then if we're all equal, then 
you need to join our tribe. In round three, a frenzy took hold. The delegates were five men on the stools and one woman who ended up standing on her stool screaming at the men for not letting her talk, which seems to be a pattern in our world. This is just another example of male competitive behavior. You need to join my tribe, she said. Moments later, the world exploded. These were very smart leaders in the world, rational, yet in 50 minutes, their tribal loyalty became so strong that they were willing to let the world explode over it. Dan said he has run this exercise many, many times, and only a handful of times has it ended peacefully. He said the tribal dynamic is so strong in us, so compelling, that participants lose sight of their goal for saving the world for the sake of their little tribal identity. And it's just completely irrational, he says. Why? Identity. The tribe that we belong to gives us our identity, and that identity gives us our sense of self-worth, of how we define ourselves. So what tribe do you belong to? While this question may make us a little easy, it is the question that defines us these days, for we are more than ever since the Civil War tribalized and divided. Even in our era of fake news and alternative facts, this is not debated. In a Wall Street Journal article yesterday, America Meet America, Getting Past Our Toxic Relationship, Amanda Ridley wrote, We Americans have a new enemy and it is ourselves. Half of Democrats and Republicans now see members of the opposing party is not just ill-informed, but actually frightening, according to the Pew Research Center. In experiments with thousands of Americans, researchers have found that partisan animosity can now exceed racial hostility. When awarding hypothetical scholarships in cash, we are more likely to discriminate based on politics than race. As of 2010, A third of Democrats and half of Republicans said that they would be upset if their children married someone from the other party, up from 5% from each group in 1960. Ouch. Why do we hate each other so, she asks. One reason is that Americans are more politically segregated than in the past. We are less likely to have neighbors who belong to another party than we were 20 years ago. And one thing we know about human behavior is that it is easier to hate people that you do not know. This is not a political problem. It is a spiritual problem. When Paul wrote his letter to the Gentile church in Galatia, They too were being ostracized and divided from the larger Jewish tribe, Judaism, because they were Gentiles. 
And the Jewish Judaism tribe said that you had to follow the taboos and the rituals, especially circumcision and the purity food rites in order to be a part of our tribe. And they were hammered by the larger tribe for not following it. And Paul was writing to them saying this, because of the grace given to us in Jesus Christ, you are now a member of God's larger tribal family. You are just as much a child of God as are the Jews. And you don't have to follow the law and be circumcised for it. In fact, by following that law, you're giving up your freedom. And by following that law, you are becoming more and more tribalized against those who do not follow the law. Such is the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ that continues to expand the boundaries of who is in the tribe and who is not. Paul was at one point one of the main keepers of the tribal rituals and taboos. And when he was encountered by the risen Christ, it blew all of that out of the water and he experienced in his life this enormous power to begin to see people differently than just through the lens of tribes. He writes, If you continue to bite and ravage each other, watch out in no time at all. You'll be annihilating each other and where will your precious freedom be then? He writes, It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. And he goes down that long, painful list, ending with an importance to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, demonizing them, uncontrolled addictions, ugly parodies of community. This way, Paul says, leads to slavery, not freedom. And in the end, in Dan Shapiro's experiment, annihilation. As we face the 4th of July celebrating our country's birthday, the Declaration of Independence, it might be good to be reminded where true freedom is found. As Paul proclaims, we are saved by grace, not by our tribal walls. We are saved simply because God loves us. This is where our true identity is found. This is where we discover our true freedom. Paul knows there is no way to love others while basing our identity on our tribal connections. And he knows that the only way we can come to see that we are all children of God is to know that we have been loved by God just as has everyone else. We face in our country and especially in this church a moment for reconciliation, an opportunity for us to move past our tribal identities and to reclaim what we hold together. Our mission at Riverside is becoming to be a movement for reconciliation, for 
Not freedom from, but freedom for reconciliation. And like all unreconciled relationships, it always begins at the table. The kitchen table, or the restaurant table, or the holy table of sacrament and communion. It's when we eat with each other. As the disciples ate with each other the night before Jesus was betrayed. As the church has eaten with each other, even though we are all over the maps in terms of our tribal identities, it's when we eat with each other that we are showing forth the reconciliation of God in Jesus Christ. It's why we call it a communion table. One faith, one community, one baptism, one God is our choice. Let's choose reconciliation.